0: scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 51 Psalm 51 to the choir master a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone in to Bathsheba have mercy on me O God according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy blot out my transgressions For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and a whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let us pray. Father, we come before you, and like David, we need to repent of our sin. Lord, we thank you that we can. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would indeed this morning grant us repentance and faith. Bless us, Lord, as we open up your word. Speak to us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, and use, O oh Lord, this instrument, this weak man, to proclaim the power and the strength of your word. Bless us now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you to reflect on something. I want you to think about how committed you are to change. If one thing that this pandemic has conveyed to us is that massive change can happen in our lives especially if it is outside of our control. But what about our own change? What's our own commitment to change? Now, the kind of commitment to change uh, I'm talking about is not about changing your career or even changing your diet. It's not about the massive changes that have come uh, about to many of our daily routines because of this pandemic or through those new phrases we've all become familiar with, you know, social distancing and flattening the curve and those kinds of things that are coming to our problems. Like those are, those are phrases we didn't even know just a couple of months ago. Because all of that kind of change, as disruptive as it has been, is something that will come to an end or of a sort. But what I want you to think about is what is your commitment to personal change? You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us very clearly that we are sinners. We looked at this last week in particular. All have sinned, as Romans says, Paul says in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. It also tells us, however, not just that the wages of sin is death, but it speaks on the positive side. The bad news is, The wages of sin is death. But the good news is the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus broke the power of sin on the cross. And he did this because he paid the price. And not only did he die, but on the third day he was resurrected, which meant that the wages of sin could be paid for by his righteous sacrifice on our behalf. So although Jesus broke the power of sin, The Bible also tells us that there is a remaining sin that continues to be eradicated, and Jesus Christ provides the way, and we are called, if we are believers, to wrestle with it, to work out our salvation with trembling, to be sanctified progressively throughout our life. And so we are called to cooperatively cooperatively work with God on this. But one of the challenges of this is that we don 't always know how to do this. The path to doing this to the path to sanctification, the path to peace with God ultimately begins as we saw last week in the first five verses of this uh, this psalm with repentance with confession the 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 progression that we see here in this psalm is where David comes before God, recognizing his sin and confessing it clearly before God. We need to feel the need to confess with conviction. This means acknowledging our sin fully and completely. It's not easy to do that. Those of you who have tried, perhaps even this week, as you have thought about the Word of God and and, and the, the claims that the scriptures make. Perhaps you've tried this week to confess your sin, and it's not easy. Because one of the things is, sometimes we don't even feel convicted of it. We don't even feel that we're sinners. And one of the things I want to encourage you with this morning is the fact that if you feel convicted of your sin, and you feel a need to come before God and confess it, that is a measure of God's grace. Because many do not feel that. Many do not feel a conviction of their sin because sin, let's be honest, is at first pleasurable. Let me just think about this in terms of David's sin, right? When he was looking at Bathsheba, he didn't say, oh, yuck, right? He delighted. He delighted in her. He delighted in thinking about and then acting upon his fantasy with her. didn't feel sinful to him at the time, necessarily. It felt pleasurable, right? That's the hard thing when we consider sin. Many people understand that sin is pleasurable, and the Bible is very honest about this. It acknowledges it. The Bible acknowledges that there is pleasure in sin, but the Bible also says that that pleasure is fleeting, And we understand that fleeting pleasure, don't we? Think about it in your own heart and life. When you get that juicy bit of gossip, it just feels good to get that out there. Makes you feel better about yourself or makes you feel better about putting that other person down, right? It feels good. Children, right? You know what this feels like. It feels good to defy your parents' authority, to get away with it, to finally have that just little bit of freedom from the rules and from the restrictions. Feels good, too, for us to get actually angry about something. You know, it just feels good to get angry sometimes, right? He deserves it, right? That's, that's how we think, that's how it feels, that's why we engage in it, that's why we indulge in it, that's why we're bound to it so much. But this pleasure, is, as the scriptures say, fleeting. And it is, as the scriptures say, the way to death. The wages of sin, the cost of sin, is death. But David wasn't stopped by that. David was well-educated in what was sinful and what was not sinful. He was the king. And one of the acts of the Israelite kings was that they were to study the law before they came into that, Uh, into that role. And David did that. So he knew, intellectually, that what he was doing was sin. But he was caught up in the pleasure of it. Like so many of us were caught in the pleasure of sin and stuck in it. So much so that he didn't see, even though he believed in God, even though he trusted in God, he didn't see the need to repent of it until Nathan the prophet came to him And told him that parable about the rich man and the poor man. And David was incensed at the injustice of it all. And Nathan turns to him and says, you are that man. You are the man. You are guilty of sin. And then deep conviction came on David. And David's conviction, though, didn't just remain. He confessed it. He poured it out. And that's what we saw last week in those first Five verses. He confesses the sin. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Did my 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 mother conceive me? David confessed his sin. He acknowledged the injury of his sin against God and the extent of his sin. It even extended all the way back to birth, all the way back to pre-birth, being conceived in sin. Now that's something that we don't do naturally. We don't naturally confess our sin that way. We want to get through it, right? Maybe we we have those pangs of guilt. And we just want to find ways we maybe distract ourselves or we think about something else or, you know, in time, we just let time fade things into the background. But if we want to really repent, if we want to be reconciled with God, we must learn the grace of confessing our sins. But we could say, okay, well, that's important to do. But is that all that we need to do? what constitutes fully biblical repentance and forgiveness? What does it really mean to repent? I think for many people, forgiveness is what you get when you ask for it, right? If you're a child, for example, and you spill the milk, you ask forgiveness from your parents. Well, And then we think, okay, well, yes, they give us us forgiveness. And repentance is cleaning up the mess that we've made, right? That, That seems to be what we think of in terms of repentance. But is that really what repentance is? Is repentance a work? Is it something that we do? So long as you clean up your act, you're repentant. I remember a conversation between my pastor in South Carolina and one of his members, and this member was describing an ongoing struggle with sin in his life. And his answer to the problem that he presented before the pastor was that he was going to combine his repentance with fasting. He was going to fast before God so that God would know that he was really serious this time about repenting from sin. Is that what biblical repentance is? that we're going to work hard, we're going to clean up that milk, clean up that mess, and we're going to show that we're serious by, by denying ourselves food or fasting or whatever it is. How, is. Is that what repentance really is? Is that what Jesus preaches when he says, repent and believe? Does God require you to clean up your act and to show him you mean it by doing something extra, like maybe fasting or maybe giving a little extra money to the church that you can't afford, but you're doing it just to show God that you're really serious at this time? The answer to that question is no. That's not biblical repentance. The scriptures talk about repentance not as a work, but as a gift, a gift from God. Paul's instructions to Timothy show this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 to 26, when he instructs him, about dealing with opponents in ministry and how he's to correct them with gentleness. And he says this, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So where does repentance come from? Repentance comes from God. Some. 51 is a classic exposition of what repentance from God looks like. In these verses, we see David begin by confessing his sin. That's what we looked at last week, those first five verses. And if you remember, I said that the progression of this psalm is sort of like a V. It starts up here with David coming down, realizing the extent of his sin, and confessing. And then there's sort of a, a, a turning point that happens after he confesses his sin, and it comes around, and we see him expressing his utter need, and then ultimately it comes up, and we see here his, uh, h- him making final province promises to God. So that first part, that confession part, is verses 1 to 5, and then verses 6 to 12, but particularly 10 to 12, is David acknowledging his needs, and then finally we see in verses 13 to 19, in progress towards the new promises uh, of obedience. You see, the fact that David does not um, just rest with confessing his sins, but expresses his needs and make new promises to God is a picture that this is truly a God-given repentance. Because for us, sometimes we feel that we've repented just so long as we have confessed our sins. And God is faithful, as First John 1, 9 says, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But there's a second part of that, that verse, verse 10, which talks about that he will purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we are truly repentant, then our sins won't stop at the confession stage. But they will come, we will come before God and express our ultimate needs. And in repentance, we will act, and we will make promises to God, and we will endeavor after, as our catechism says, a new obedience in a new direction. And this is the, the pattern that we see in the scriptures. You see, one of our problems when we come before God is that we come before God really only partially right? We feel the guilt maybe of our sin, but we don't understand what it means for us to repent not only of our sins, the, the actual uh, violations of God's law, but we also need to come before God and repent of our righteousness. Now, what do you mean by that, repent of our righteousness? Well, uh, what I'm speaking about there is not the righteousness that we receive from God, but the self-righteousness that we have. You see, David, Knew that he had done wrong, but he didn't feel the need to confess it. Why? Well, the answer to that question is that in some way, David felt that he was righteous. Some way, he had legitimized his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, against the nation of Israel, and first and foremost, against God. He had some way of reconciling his actions. And so, confessing his sin isn't just acknowledging what he had done, it is indeed coming before God and confessing that we have come to the end of our own resources, that we cannot clean our own hearts, but we need God to create in us a clean heart. You see, this is a problem because this is not just a problem out there in the world with unbelievers, this is a problem with us as Christians. You see, this is one of the problems, because we have a cheap understanding of what repentance is. You see, in our proud, sinful natures, we don't want to confess our utter and desperate need for the gospel. We want to hold on to some of our dignity. We're the righteous ones, after all. I mean, those of you watching this broadcast, I mean, you could be doing a lot of other things. You could be binge-watching something on Netflix. You could be going outside and enjoying the glorious weather, or at least the weather that's nice here in Toronto, but you're here. And that, that must give you some credit with God, right? Like, I'm here. This is better, right? And, and there's a sense in which we can even derive righteousness from our religious acts. But as the scriptures clearly say, our best deeds are as filthy rags. They earn us no righteousness before God. So our act, actions are not what is, is truly cleansing of our sin. It is God who cleanses us from our sins. And it's, it's interesting, as we see David's confession, as David comes before, and we saw this last week, he did not make excuses. He did not advance one positive argument in his favor. It was a full and complete confession. He didn't say, well, Bathsheba shouldn't have bathed in the open. I mean, isn't she just an exhibitionist? for going up on a roof. He doesn't say, well, I didn't actually kill Uriah. It was Joab. Joab could have disobeyed my orders. You know, it's really on him, that the whole murder thing. Yes, I made a bad decision, but he's the one that carried out my orders, right? And I think that part of the real grappling that we have with this whole issue is that we really don't see the extent of our sin. We may see individual sins, but we don't see the pervasiveness of it in our lives. That's why I think a lot of Christians, when they read the Apostle Paul's confession in 1 Timothy 1.15, they don't believe it. Paul says this about himself. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, right, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is how he describes himself. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am one of them, right? Does he say that? I'm one of those sinners, Christ Jesus came into the world. No, what he says is, of whom I am the worst, the worst. I say, well, you know, Paul, you're a good guy, right? Yeah, you might've had a problem in the past, but now, you know, you're, you're, you're walking the straight and narrow. You're good, Paul, if anyone's good, you're good. I mean, you wrote the, the New Testament with the Holy Spirit, you know, who, who can claim that? But Paul had such a great understanding of the gospel. He understood that he was sinful and that his life depended on a relationship with God, a relationship that was honest and true, not based in his own strength, not based in his own religiosity or in his, his good deeds. He even lists them various places. He was much more righteous uh, in worldly eyes and in religious eyes than any of us. Right, he was, uh, he was, he was trained. He was devout. All of those things, but he sees himself as the worst sinner. And friend, we need to see ourselves rightly as sinners before God. We need that to motivate us, to help us to see our absolute and utter need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our absolute and utter need to live a life of repentance. So we're going to finish our look here this morning at this psalm. We're going to look now beyond the first 5 verses, the beyond the first part of the v, we're going to look at the second part, verses 6 to 12. We're going to look at David's needs and our needs. And then finally, we'll look at David's promises, verses 13 to 19. Confession expression of dependency, our needs, and endeavoring after new obedience. Well, let's look at these needs. First of all, let's look at verse 6. Pick it up in verse 6. <clears throat> he says, Behold, I was brought, sorry, Behold, your, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. We see here that David's first need is inner integrity. Integrity is not something that you can just sort of put on and put off. It is a consistent inner heart integrity. David had been a hypocrite for a long period of time until Nathan, the prophet confronted him and said, you are the man. He confronted David with his evil deeds and David had his rotten heart exposed. And as we said last week, in terms of confession, in terms of, uh, of of sanctification, unless you face reality, you're not ready for a change. David here expresses that he is rotten to the core. He knows that this is not what is pleasing to God, and so his first need that he expresses expresses is to have that truth in the inward being, wisdom, biblical wisdom in the secret heart because it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks it's out of the overflow of the heart that the the body acts and so david begins here with the uh, Ah. the, the, the utter reality of his sinfulness and his need for god to address it but facing that reality is not enough plenty of people know that sin is bad And they don't, and they still don't stop doing. So, what brings us to this reality? What brings us to the reality that we really do need to change? Well, that reality is something that's brought by the Spirit of God. Look at verse 11: Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David identifies that what brings truth into our lives is the presence of God mediated by the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting here because David is no longer focused on fulfilling his own needs any longer. His greatest fear in all of this is that he will lose God. He is, he, he, he's, his greatest fear is that God will withdraw from him. This is our problem Oftentimes, because it is not our fear. This is why we struggle. The writer to the Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see, whatever we put our trust in most is what we fear most losing. Let me ask you, what is your greatest fear? This morning is your greatest fear that you will lose your job or that you will lose your family, your children, your grandchildren. Where does your greatest fear rest? You see, it's very easy for us to change from being grateful receivers of God's gracious gifts into being idolaters of those same gifts. Work is a gift from God. It's a blessing from God. And when it's withdrawn, we understand some of the blessing that that is. Children are a blessing from God. But there are times when our children are withdrawn from us. Perhaps not now, but at other times, right? The very things for which we have been so grateful in our lives, the very things we once thought we didn't deserve, can morph into things we're convinced that we can't live without. What we were once grateful to God to get, get replaced with a low level of anxiety. This is what happens when the things in our life become idols. We want them, and they then control our behavior. They then become the thing that we are working most to protect. And this is what happened with David. David trusted in his privilege too much. And that privilege became the source of his satisfaction. He could have whatever he wanted. He could have any woman that he wanted. He could have anyone killed that he wanted. And so he began to act like God and did not trust in God. But then when that satisfaction became threatened, he became consumed with protecting his sin. When he had sinned against Bathsheba, he could have stopped. He could have gone to Uriah and confessed his sin and been dealt with before all of Israel. But instead he protected his son, and got deeper into it, and had her husband killed. David's repentance here is seen in this proper appreciation or valuing of God's presence. You see, in part, we have not truly repented if we not only just feel the guilt of our sin, but we see the consequences of that. We do not receive the blessing of God in our lives. And that is our greatest need, is to be in the presence of God. Now, I want to be clear, because I think some people have used this text improperly. Unlike what some commentators have said, David's not afraid of losing his salvation here. Right? When he says in verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. We cannot lose our salvation. The scriptures are very clear. Jesus promised to be with us even to the end. So what is exactly going on here? Well, David's fear is that now that he sees his sin, he knows that he cannot live a less sinful life without God's help. And he can't bear the thought of God withdrawing from him for his sinfulness. It is possible to grieve the Spirit of God. And we can't expect the blessing of God When we are sinning against God, right? You can talk about this in very practical terms, right? Students, if you're studying and you choose to put your studies ahead of worship, for example, do you expect that God will bless your studies if you are disobeying God in order to do that? David's fear has been rightly reestablished in this psalm. His fear is that now that he sees his sin, he knows that he cannot live a less sinful life without God's help. It's most important to him. What is most vital to him is his relationship with God. And he doesn't want anything to come in between. He doesn't want sin to prevent that relationship. He can't bear the thought of God withdrawing from him for his sinfulness. What is your greatest fear this morning? what is your greatest fear this morning? What you're afraid of shows what you're actually dependent upon. David is so dependent on God at this point that his biggest fear is that God will withdraw his presence and his Holy Spirit. Christian, what is your fear this morning? What is it that makes you most anxious? Are you afraid of what other people will think of you? Are you afraid of preserving your relationships? Are you afraid of poverty? That's a real challenge. I was speaking with a brother in India this week and because of the work stoppage, people are starving. That's a real concern. Maybe it's not so much for us here in the West, but it is, people are facing that. That's a real fear and that's an important issue that we need to address. But we need to understand that the bigger issue is not the loss of food. You remember Alan Gardner, that I mentioned several Sundays ago, who died of starvation. And in his journal, he quoted from the Psalms and he said, The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who love the Lord lack no good thing. He lacked food. That's a good thing. But he understood. That more than physical food, he needed the food of relationship with God. Because this body will pass away. Whether it passes away because of a virus or something else, it will pass away. But the soul that is within this body is eternal. And it will never pass away. And the soul's need, ultimately, is relationship with the God who made it. And the Bible tells us that we are in rebellion by our very sinful nature. And unless we are reconciled with God, we will be indeed abandoned to his wrath in hell. So David understands the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is t- a terrible consequence. And so he's concerned to root out his sin. Now there's an interesting parallelism that happens in this, uh, this psalm. There's a, kind of a parallel of threes throughout this psalm. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, David describes his sin using three different terms. He calls them transgressions, iniquities, and sins. And these d- describe different aspects of our sin. Transgression is the, uh, the, the concept of rebellion. When we transgress something, we break the law. We know what is right, and we rebel against it. David knew that when he took Uriah's wife, he was sinning, but yet he did it. He became a law unto himself. That second word, iniquity, is, <clears throat> has to do with perversion. This is something we would more associate with our natural depravity or our original sin. It's the word used to describe our fallen nature. Verse 5 uh, uses that. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, our sinful nature our depravity. And then there's that third word that he uses there, cleanse me from my sin. Short uh, Hebrew word, chata. And uh, what that means is that we fall short. We fall short of the glory of God. We Literally, we miss the mark in that way. Now, these three elements that are stated by David in verses one and two are picked up here in the um, in, in the need section, where, where David expresses his needs. Uh, he, 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 he needs God first to, as verse 7 puts it, cleanse me from my sin, from my chata. Literally means to de-sin him. He wanted to be washed of it. And again, this is not a work that he does. He needs God to purify him. Isaiah later on says this, <clears throat> In Isaiah 1.18, he speaks of this kind of cleaning. He says, Come, now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Completely washed away. There is a stain of sin on David's life. And there's a stain of sin on our lives as well. And only God can remove it. That's David's first need. And as we come before God, we need to express our need for God to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to purify our harm. But then he goes on in verse 7, uh, <clears throat> he, he, asks him, uh, sorry, he asks him to blot out my transgressions, right? Um, he needs him to remove his transgressions. And blotting out of his transgression, as it's mentioned back there in verse 2, refers to removing writing from the book, perhaps removing an indictment. It's the very thing that Pilate did not do, right? Pilate was asked at the time of Jesus' trial to vacate the charge against Jesus. But what he says in John 19, 22 is, What I have written, I have written. He stands behind him. But when David asks for something to be blotted out, I think it's something that sometimes is lost in our cultural divide between us and the Old Testament, because this was actually something that was frequently done. Um, Some of you are uh, too young to know what whiteout is. Whiteout's the thing that we would wipe on paper when we used to type up memos. Yes, some of us old folks did do that and use whiteout to blot out our mistakes. this is how they did it in the ancient world as well. James Boyce talks about something called palimpsests, which were uh, pieces of papyrus that the manuscripts were written on. And because papyrus was so expensive, uh, sometimes they would reuse it. And what they would do is try and rub the papyrus of, uh, of the ink, and then they would turn it on a different direction and write uh, um, uh, the, the new texts that were there. And this is what David is calling for. It's what we all desperately need. The book of our lives have been written upon with many sins. And we need God to blot it out and to write not sin, but the righteousness of Christ. And this is what the gospel does. At the cross, there is this double imputation. We have at the cross, the great gift is the great exchange, the exchange of our sin for Christ's righteousness. So, our sin is washed away, and we are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the great blotting out that we need. But the, the language in verse seven is very interesting. It says, "Cleanse me with hyssop with hyssop." And hyssop was a, a small plant that was native to Israel at the time, and because of its shape and structure, it was used as a brush, small brush and in ceremonies in the temple, as is described in Leviticus, it was used to sprinkle blood. This is first, the first time it's mentioned in the Bible is at the Passover when the Jews were living, leaving Egypt. In Exodus 12, it says this this is the instruction from the Lord take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. When the angel of death saw the blood, coming over. Remember the angel of death that was there to take the firstborn? <clears throat> he passed over the Jewish households, and the firstborn in those homes did not die. After that, we are told how hyssop was used to sprinkle blood on one who had been, uh, who had been made unclean in the Old Testament law, in the Levitical law. And it was used in various rituals of cleansing as well. But in the New Testament, hyssop takes on again uh, a, 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 a ceremonial role. Uh, the author of Hebrews speaks of this, uh, and he, he speaks of, of this use of hyssop in the Old Covenant. And he says this in, in uh, Hebrews nine nineteen. he says, For when every com- commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in this way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, the writer of the Hebrews says, there is no forgiveness for sins. So David understood this. When he says, cleanse me with hyssop, he means cleanse me by the blood. And this Old Testament system of sacrificing animals and and sprinkling their blood anticipated the pure blood of the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb in the New Testament is Jesus Christ. And the blood that he shed on the cross for our sins. You see, David's sins, like ours, are capital crimes. And so without the shedding of blood, there is no sacrifice for sin. And this is what David is expressing. He's expressing his utter and complete need for God to cleanse him, to blot out, to forgive his sins, his transgressions, his iniquity. David's need here is for a real God. Not some sort of image that we sometimes have in our our mind's eye of a fuzzy God who just is out there, whose job is to forgive us of our sins, and we're not really responsible to him. We're not really uh, uh, accountable to him. David understands his need for the bone-crushing humility that God brings in this life. Verse eight is a very curious one. It says, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You see, David understands the extent of real repentance. Real repentance isn't just a temporary passing thing. Real repentance breaks you down. It unpacks your pride. It deals with your selfishness and builds on the foundation of God's love, his chesed. The breaking is not pleasant. It is not pleasant to have our sin exposed. In fact, we hate it. That's why it's so hard to admit. That's why it's so hard to confess. That's why it's so hard to ask for forgiveness. Because our pride and our self-love and all of those things stand in the way. And we need God to expose it by his Holy Spirit. See, we all have this perverse capacity to be comfortable with our sin. To be comfortable doing what God says is wrong. So one of the things that God gives us is a violent, an uncomfortable grace See, we wouldn't say, looking at this, yay, I have a broken bone. Yes, I'm so happy that I have been broken down and pulled apart in this way. That's not how we work. But that's close to what David is actually saying there in verse eight. He is using the searing pain of broken bones as a metaphor of the the pain of heart that you feel when you really see the sin for what it is. That pain is a good thing. A lot of us don't feel that way when we first feel pain, but pain is an indicator that something is wrong. It's an alert. It's a neurological alert that God has given to us that we hurt ourselves. Leprosy is the inability, in part, to feel pain. That's why people lose their, their... their, their limbs, or they used to, with leprosy because they become so numb. They're not, they're not aware that when they're touching something, it's burning them or hurting them. And so they frequently uh, lose their extremities because they can't feel them anymore. Pain is actually something that God uses to alert us that something is utterly wrong. And so there is pain in repentance, there is embarrassment. There's humiliation, but God uses that. The pain of being broken tells you that something is desperately wrong, and it gives you an opportunity to seek healing. If you don't feel the pain, you won't seek the help of the doctor, of the great physician. And this is why God sometimes allows us to suffer for our sin in order to reveal greater good and greater joy in our lives as we see the results of sin. We can't always draw a straight line from the sin that we commit to the suffering that we, we experience. But the reality is that we all live under the suffering of sin. This COVID-19 is really a consequence of sin. Death and sickness have come into the world because of our sin. And it's alarm and it's an alert to us that we need to turn to our God in repentance. Repent, as Jesus says, lest you likewise perish. And so David here repents and, and, and cries out to God, let me hear joy and gladness, let the bones you have broken rejoice. He's wholeheartedly abandoned to living under God's mercy and grace. He wants to end this double life that he's been living. And maybe some of you have been living where you have this outward sort of righteousness. He was the king of Israel. He was supposed to be a priest, king and a priest. And he was exposed. And some of us have that exterior, right? And we have this unconfessed sin, this unrepented of sin. And we live a double life. And that will only lead to death. We must repent and believe and trust in God. That's why repentance is paired with faith. Jesus Christ, the first call of the kingdom in the Gospels is repent and believe. You see, you can't do this without faith, which is again another gift from God, right? Faith is not depending upon yourself, but entrusting yourself for real to the God who made you and his power to save you and sustain you. And when you do that, you begin to worship God for who he is and not as a selfish way to gain credit for yourselves or to look better or or whatever means that you're using worship or, or religion for. Because God's not interested in that kind of religion. Verse 16, he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Real repentance, real religion, real worship before God who knows us completely anyway. You see, our salvation is by God's grace alone. If you're depending on your efforts to stay out of your troubles, then you're really helpless and hopeless. I'm a parent. And I look at my children at times and it's impossible for me to keep them out of sin. It's impossible for me to keep myself out of my own sin. But I remember what a friend of mine His sister had a wayward son, and she used to pray this for her children every day. She used to say, pray, she'd say, keep him, her son, out of trouble. But if he does do something bad, please grant him the grace of getting caught. You see, when we're caught in our sin, when it's exposed there's an opportunity for repentance. There's an opportunity to go to Jesus Christ truly and completely and fully. You see, at the heart of David's needs are his his need to be cleansed from sin. And as he says there in verse 10, to be given a new heart, right? He says, hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Oh, this is a great request and a great need. David is asking to be fully renovated by God. He's asking to be made holy by God. He already has the Spirit of God, he's afraid of losing it. He wants more of God, not less. But David can't do it, he needs a sanctifying work of God. And it's interesting, the very Hebrew word that he uses here is create. It's the same word that we see in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a creative work. When God creates in us a new heart and new desires, it is a creation out of nothing. It's not like, okay, I've read this book and now I'm going to follow these rules. No, it is a work of God to create a new heart in us. Because when we have that new heart, the power of sin has been canceled. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3.10, We have put on a new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You See, David's need is yours and mine this morning. We need to be humbled by God, by his bone-crushing grace. And we need him to create in us clean hearts with renewed spirit. And thus, we need also, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, one of the things that's interesting in lives of many Christians is they become Christians and there's great joy and zeal and and delight because they've, they've been granted the gift freshly of repentance and faith. But then there is a lessening, right? And we get... We, get, we, we fall back into, into patterns and we have sort of these ups and downs throughout our life. And we lose that sense of the joy that we had when we were first believers because we lose the joy of repentance because we're not perhaps doing it as much anymore. William Cowper, is famous for his hymn, Oh, for a closer walk with God. And he expresses this in one of the verses. He says, where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? Return, O holy dove, return, sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Is that your cry this morning? Tear those idols from my heart. Humble me before the mighty and great God who made me, created me a clean heart. Purify me, cleanse me with hyssop. I need the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ can wash away my sin. That's the cry of David. Is that your cry? Are you struggling spiritually? Are you wrestling with the ennui of life and the constant battle with sin? Friend, you need to come before God in repentance. You need to be broken down to confess your sin. But not only to confess your sin, but to be purified, to be made holy, and to endeavor after a new obedience. And this is what we see finally in this section from verses 13 to 19. So having confessed his sin, having laid out his utter need of God, we see David switch to the promises that he commits to. This is an important thing for us to see. Many of us stop doing New Year's resolutions because we don't fulfill them. But here's here's the reality. If we're Christians, we have the Spirit of God at work in us. And we can change. But it's important that we also commit ourselves to change. And so he commits to God and he ponders the joy of being in relationship with a forgiving God. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood, guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Do you sing aloud of God's righteousness? Do you sing with joy? as you sing these gospel hymns, right? I like to get hymns that are sung by Christians. I don't want the Mormon tabernacle choir. They don't believe the gospel. I want the the messy sounds of Covenant Baptist Church singing with joy to Jesus Christ because I know that there, there are sinners who have been saved by Jesus Christ. Oh, I miss that. I miss that. I hope you're singing in your homes as we gather together. It's not the same. And I long for us to be back together, but there is a singing. There's a joy here. David expresses it. My tongue will sing aloud. Isn't it amazing? They're actually singing of, uh, of his sin, his confession, his needs, and his promises have been inscripturated for all time to be sung about. Can you imagine having your worst things brought up and sung about? Well, you can if you understand the glory of God's repentance, the glory of God's gift of grace. You will understand it if you understand that you are the worst sinner, that it's not about your reputation, it's about God's glory. It's about his forgiveness, it's about his chesed, it's about his shalom, it's about his wonder and his grace. It changes everything. It changes the way that you teach, right? Then I will preach transgressors your ways, not from a position of self-righteousness, but from the position of a redeemed sinner. I can't preach this gospel to you because I can say that I'm a blameless individual. I have sinned. My only comfort in life and death is Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't come to you as some perfect or even close to perfect specimen of God. I come to you as a trophy of God's grace, of God's mercy to a sinner like me. And David's reminding us here that what qualifies us to teach in the personal ministry context of daily life is the grace that you have received yourselves in your own moments of need. He's not laying out a systematic theology of grace here. No, what's actually happening here, what it's actually about is realizing the, gra- the grace of God's rescue of you. And recognizing that grace and God's rescue becomes a powerful tool in speaking of that grace with others. Some of you have seen the, uh, the challenges that are out there on Facebook among Christians to share during, during the pandemic, the grace of God and how they were converted. That's a great thing to do. It's a great way. We have much to give thanks for from God. And we need to cultivate that grateful heart because that helps us to resist sin. If you're reveling in the grace that God has shown to you, and if you're telling others about how he has forgiven you from your sins, and, and that means you know, confessing and 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 dealing with things openly, then you can't be partaking in sin, right? There's a replacement that happens. The time and energy that you put into sin is now put into worship, is put into glorifying God. And when we're teaching others, it's not teaching people about the the the, the technicalities of grace. We're talking about the experience of grace. Christian, how have you experienced grace in your life? That's what you need to share with your friends and your relatives. Sure, you can have a conversation about predestination and and the origin of evil and all that kind of stuff. Those are intellectual things, but don't forget the grace of God to you as a sinner. Don't forget to tell them about how you were a wicked, selfish, inwardly bent individual, and the Holy Spirit came into you, convicted you of your sin, and pointed you to the cross of Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. What is your experience of grace? Do you share that experience of grace with others? David had a concern. We see his concern moves even beyond his own ministry. Look at what he says here. He says at the end of the psalm, he says, he asked for the walls to be built. He says this in, in verse 19. He says, uh, do good, verse 18, do good to in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings, and bulls will be all uttered on your altar. You see, what's happened here is that David has been now taken over, not by his own desires and his own directives, but he's been, he's been captivated. He's been made captive to Jesus Christ. And now his heart is to see the purposes of God extend for the glory of God to extend to the ends of the earth, and he's praying that God would receive the worship that God deserves and let's do His name. You see, no longer is David's vision dominated by just a woman that he wants. Now he finds joy in envisioning hundreds and thousands of people making the pilgrimage to Zion to worship the God who has changed him, the God alone who is worthy of the adoration and praise. You see, this is a picture here in Psalm 51 of true personal transformation. A man who was once captured by evil, dark lust is now filled with love, right? It's a picture of real repentance, It's right? Isn't it interesting, even in, in the book of Ephesians, how Paul describes the thief, the repentant thief. It's not that he just stops stealing. But that he becomes, he works with his hands and he's generous. He becomes the opposite of that. David didn't just stop sleeping with other men's wives, right? His real personal transformation is that he was filled with a deep love for others and an excitement to see them transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's calling blessings upon his people. And he's saying, God, bless your people, because if you do, they will glorify you. Bless them with repentance, because then they will truly glorify you. We need to consider this, how that works out. Works out in all kinds of ways. It works out in our prayers, right? Our prayers, as we address our sin. As we come before God and confess our sin, as as we start to adopt his agenda, our prayers become less focused on our own selfishness, and they become about the glory of God. We become concerned. Why do we have a lack of concern about missions? Why do we have a lack of concern about evangelism? Because we are still stuck. Because we have not adopted the vision of God to reach the nations to fulfill the great kingdom of God. We're too busy about keeping our kingdom, protecting our kingdom. We're not really concerned about God's kingdom in that same way. But the gift of repentance is something that will manifest. It will manifest in a love and a concern for others because that's God's love to us. God is love. And his love is to bring forgiveness and grace to all who would believe. And so if you have been forgiven, By God's grace, share it. Share the grace of God. And that will remind you again and reprioritize and refocus you. Give your testimony. Speak to somebody. We're not about trying to to, to guilt you into sharing the gospel with other people. No, that's the absolute opposite of it. No, we want to rejoice you into sharing the gospel as you rejoice and revel in God's forgiveness and grace to you, you can't help but speak of it to others. But perhaps you don't feel that this morning. And perhaps we need to to, to really examine, are we repentant? And if we are not, if we detect the sinfulness in our hearts, cry out to God, confess your sin, because God is faithful and just to cleanse and to to forgive and to cleanse and purify you from all unrighteousness. That's the glory, that's the wonder, that's the joy and gladness of broken bones. That is the grace of repentance that leads to peace with God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you, O Lord, that you work with us, that you did not abandon us when we sinned but that you sent the word of God to be like a Nathan to us, to confront us with our sins and to call us to repentance. Lord, we pray that you would use the circumstances of the lives of the people that are watching this to confront them with their need for repentance and faith, the gifts that only you provide. Help us, Lord, to cry out to you, cry out fully and completely to help us, Lord, to confess our sins, and to confess our need of you. And then, Lord, help us to endeavor after and to fulfill promises to be your servants, to live for you. We cannot do this without you. We can't do this without your spirit. Work in us to will and to work our own salvation with fear and trembling for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.